Let me take one moment to invite you, if you just sang that song and it is not well with your soul, if you cannot proclaim today, if you are not certain that if you were to die today, you would spend eternity with Jesus, you can't sing that song, it is well. But I want to just share with you really briefly how you can sing that song, it is well with my soul. If you have put your complete trust in Christ as your Savior, you can sing, it is well with my soul. You don't have to doubt for another second whether or not you are saved. 100% of your sins are wiped away in the work of Jesus Christ. Past, present, and future. And your faith in Him will save you. I can say without a shadow of a doubt, right now, if I were to die, I would be with the Lord in heaven. How can I say that? Some people think that that's the most arrogant thing in the world, to be certain of your salvation. And one of the most troubling experiences that I've had is that when we invite you to come for membership, we have you fill out a questionnaire, and one of the questions on the paper asks, are you certain that if you died today, you would be with Christ? And I would say the majority of people who have written that answer have said, no, I am not sure. Christian, let me tell you, you can be sure. Because it is in Christ alone our hope is found. Faith in Him alone. By God's grace alone. If you are waiting to earn favor with God, you'll never do it. But there is one who on your behalf has earned favor, Christ Jesus. And if you put your faith in him this morning, you will be saved. And you can say, it is well with my soul. If you want to talk more about that after the service, I'll be around. One of our deacons will be around. Dave, raise your hand up high. You know Dave, he's the man in the pink shirt. Susan. She's the woman in the pink shirt. Raise your hand. And anyone else, if you have any, our deacons, uh, Brother McCorkle, where are you? Raise your hand. And I would love to share Christ with you. Okay? Rudy, raise your hand. He's the Jamaican back there. That's why I was waving it like this. The whites just... Okay. Don't take yourself so seriously. Racial stereotypes are funny. Um, it is well. I want to talk about the persecuted church this morning. This is a very serious subject. And forgive my joking for just that moment, but this is a very serious subject. Today is the International Day of Prayer. And the church recognizes this day as the day where we will honor and obey Scripture's command to remember those who are being persecuted. When Christians in the West, the word West refers to the Occident, it refers to those who are living in the United States, those who come from Christian industrialized nations. But specifically when Christians in America think of the word persecution, most likely images of the Roman Colosseum are conjured up in their minds because we think that persecution is something that happened 
back then. You know, it, it is really unfortunate, but Americans sometimes think that this is the only thing going on. But it's not. There are over 7 billion people on this planet, and only approximately 300 million of them live in these United States. The vast, vast majority of the world does not live in the United States and is not protected to worship freely. Recent studies have shown that persecution is even more prevalent today than at any other time in the history of Christianity. The Center for Studies on Religion found that in 2016, 90,000 Christians were killed worldwide for their beliefs alone. 90,000. The Center for Studies on Religion found that 90,000 people were killed, and I submit to you that if that were any other social group today, we would be up in arms about it. This report noted that Christians are the number one most persecuted group in the world today. Robert Nicholson, executive director of the Philos Project, a group dedicated to the protection of Christians in the Middle East, noted correctly, there are many places on earth where being a Christian is the most dangerous thing a person can be. Despite the notion that when persecution is heightened, the church grows, the statistics tell another story. Some believe that whenever there's persecution, that the church grows. I've heard people refer to the church like the Malaluka tree. Several years ago, Florida decided it would be a good idea when they wanted to populate out west in the Everglades that they would bring in the Australian Malaluka tree and they put it out on the Everglades so that it would soak up the water and then when they wanted to get rid of the Malaluka tree, they couldn't do it. The more they cut them down, the more they grew. The more they burned them, the more they grew. And I've heard people compare that to persecution, but the fact of the matter is, church, that's not always the case. Let me give you some startling numbers. Nina Shea says, although history has shown that some of the largest spurts of church growth emerge from periods of persecution, in some places like the Middle East, persecution has led to a vastly diminished Christian presence. In Iraq, the number of Christians has decreased from 35% to 5% of the overall per population. That number, to give you a, a real number, in the 20th century, it was over 1.2 million in Iraq. It's now less than 200,000, dwindling more and more each day. In Iran, the population of Christians has dwindled from 15% to 2%. In Syria, from 40% to 10%. And in Turkey, from 32% to 0.2% since the early part of the 20th century. The statistics tell us a different story than our widely held belief that persecution increases the church. The fact of the matter is, persecution wreaks havoc on God's people. 
This morning, I want to talk about your responsibility to the persecuted church. Would you pray with me? Father, right now, we lift up. It is the very least we can do on an effort on our part, and yet it is the most important thing we can do on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, we are so privileged. I pray that you would rid our hearts of the guilt of our privilege. Rid our hearts of the guilt of our privilege and fill it with a responsibility for action. Our brothers and sisters around the world are dying because of their faith in you. And we have romanticized that by saying that this is the call of your people. How dare us say such a thing while here we are able to worship you freely. Forgive us for that. We are ignorant of persecution. Persecution is hard, Lord, and we are ignorant of it. And we have so many times failed to acknowledge our responsibility for our brothers and sisters around the globe. Lord, give us a clear vision of action today. Forgive us for our apathy and unconcern for our brothers and sisters in persecution. Forgive us for our ignorance. Forgive us for our waste. We know you forgive when we ask, Lord, and we pray then that this morning we would have a new sense of understanding for the brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the opportunity to fight for them. Lord, we will fight, we will run to the voting booth and voting block to vote for anything that we believe worth fighting for. And when it comes to our brothers and sisters around the globe, we step back and romanticize persecution and excuse our lack of care and concern by saying this is the plight of the Christian. Father, forgive us. I pray, Lord, that we would care more, that we would love more. And my prayer is that we would do so before Americans have to learn firsthand what it's like to be persecuted. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to do two things, three things. I want to first exegete and just talk briefly about uh, what our Christian responsibility is from a passage of Scripture that I've chosen. Second, I want to talk about, I want to put you in the shoes of the persecuted. And then third, I just want to talk about what we can do as Christians to help our brothers and sisters around the world. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to be reading from verse 3. 
the writer of Hebrews is at the end of his letter. He has talked much by way of theology. The major theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is the better way. Another theme of Hebrews might be Christ the fulfillment of the covenant of the law. Christ the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. Everything that was typified of Christ in the old covenant, the tabernacle, the very sacrifice, the priest himself, are all found in a conclusion in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a robust theology, a robust declaration, a strong declaration that all of the sacrifices, all of the temple worship, all of the laws of the Old Covenant are fulfilled, not wiped away, but fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And here in the final chapter, as is always the case, when we learn the so what of the gospel, the next question to answer is, Now what of the gospel? Our pews in our churches have sunken in cushions because Christians love to sit on their can, can all they get, and sit on their can some more. But we have to get up, we have to be active, we have to be involved. And at the end of the letter... Whoever the author is, some suspect Paul, others Luke, some possibly Priscilla, we don't know, but the point is Hebrews is an undisputed theological book, and here is what this author has argued or urged us to do. I just want to look at verse 3 because it's the one that is most relevant for us today, and it is this, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. One of the major problems with Christians is that they are discorpulated. We got a finger over here. We got a hand over here. A foot over here. This thumb hates that index finger. The body is chopped up instead of united under the one head, which is Christ Jesus And the reason why our body is discorpulated is because our church body has been decapitated from the head, which is Christ. We are decorpulated in our body. We are decapitated in our theology. You can go into most church houses in America today and hear nothing of Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He is what unites our body. And I'm arguing that if we're going to have a body that is connected, we must have our head on our shoulders, which is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And the emphasis that the author is arguing for here is that there are brothers and sisters who are suffering, share in their suffering, because why? They're part of the body. Every one of us in here has had a hangnail before, right? 
it's this tiny little thing and it just gets red on the surface of your cuticle. You know what a hangnail is? Let me just de describe it. Let me describe it really quickly. It is hell on your finger. And it's so tiny. And it's so insignificant. It's not like we lost our finger. And the whole body hurts every time something touches it. We're sensitive to it. The nerve endings are right there in the tip of our finger. And yet we have an epidemic of persecution in the church worldwide today. And we are ignoring that the body is being injured gravely. If you will take care of the small things on your body, how much more to take care of the spiritual things for God's spiritual body and to care when the body is under attack. And so the author says here, Remember those who are in the or, or who are in prison as though you're in prison with them. And I'm going to talk about what that means. Remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. In other words, what the author is saying is when they mistreat your brothers and sisters over there, they mistreat you over here. Remember is the first word. And the word remember means in the Greek to give careful consideration to, to think of, to care for, to be concerned about, to keep in mind. The word remember is not simply an intellectual assent to remember. When, they, when, the, when the cry was to remember the Alamo, it wasn't to simply remember the data and facts. It was to honor the sacrifice made in action. And so the word remember here is not think of only. It is to be concerned about in a sense that you are incited to action. The prisoners here refers to prisoners of religious persecution. It says, remember those who are in prison. And I want to be careful about this because this is not an emphasis here for prison ministry. Though prison ministry is a wonderful thing. What the passage is speaking about here are those who have been imprisoned for religious reasons, for persecuted Christians, specifically persecuted Christians. Now, I know the interfaith community would have us concern ourselves, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but they would have us concern ourselves with all religious faiths that are persecuted. And I think it's important that we as Christians be concerned and stamp out injustice even when it goes against or when these faiths are not our particular faith. I do believe that's important. But the fact of the matter is this verse calls us to consider the body and you are not one body with Muslims. You are not one body with Buddhists. You are not one body with Shintos and Shias. You are not one body with Baha'i. You are one body 
under one head, Christ Jesus as Lord. You are to be concerned about your brothers and sisters who bear the name Christian. That's what the verse is telling you. And so it's not simply talking about prisoners, just general people who have suffered for wrongdoing. That's not the point. Peter taught that Christians should not suffer persecution as criminals. They should rejoice insofar as they suffer persecution for the name of Christ, for they will also share in his glory. Paul taught that the government should be imprisoning people who break the law. That's what the prison system's there for, to imprison criminals. And so he is not just saying, in general, be concerned with prisoners. He is saying, be concerned with those who are in prison because they bear the name Christian. And I just told you, only of the 90,000 who lost their lives, not the millions and millions who live in hiding and who are persecuted daily, who are ostracized from community, who are taxed unfairly, who have been separated, raped, sold into slavery. Millions of Christians. Scripture tells us, remember them. The exhortation to remember presupposes how easy it is to forget those who are in chains. My mother used to have a saying. She used to say, out of sight, out of mind. It's not in our sight. We don't remember things. We don't remember certain people who are suffering because they're not in front of us. And Paul, or excuse me, the author is exhorting us to keep in mind, to be proactive, to not let it slip away. There are brothers and sisters suffering. And so today, the church, the evangelical church in America and in the world has emphasized that there be at least one day where we remember these people. I had a professor at Southern, Dr. Ted Cable. He would begin every class with a little story about a Christian in suffering, and he would simply pray for them together. And he said, if I don't do this intentionally, I'll forget. It's very easy for us to forget while we're living in the West. How often do you think about your brothers and sisters in persecution? I know you don't think about them as much because I'm guilty of the same thing too. But the good news is we have opportunity this moment, this morning, to repent of our sins and to change our course of action. It is very easy to forget. The author exhorts the church to be proactive in their concern, in her concern for those who are suffering. Paul says, as though you are in, or excuse me, the author, I'm going to make that mistake because I always have assumed that it was Paul who wrote the book. So forgive me for that. As though in prison with them, the author further emphasizes when he says this, that the church's responsibility is to remember the persecuted by urging Christians to care for the imprisoned in such a way that we too feel the bondage of their chains. Remember them, how? As though you're in prison with them. Feel the manacles around your wrist, the cold density that they are struggling in, the, the dankness of their cell, the rats and the feces. 
Read books like Richard Wormbrandt's Tortured for Christ and hear of the stories that Christians have endured where they have been forced as a mockery. This morning we're going to sit here and we're going to take from the Lord's table and Richard Wormbrandt tells the story of one priest who was beaten and forced to do the Lord's Supper with urine and feces. This is very serious. We are to concern ourselves with our brothers and sisters and to live as if we were there with them. And I submit to you, we're not doing that well enough. So let me ask you this morning. Since one of the major things I hear Christians say is, hey, Christ told us this is not our home. We're going to suffer persecution in this life. That is so easy to say from over here. And listen to me, believer, it's not biblical. When you say that, it's false teaching. You are going against Scripture. Scripture commands us to remember them. Take up their cause. Fight for them. So I ask you this morning, what would you want from others if you were the one living under persecution? Nina Shea says in her book, The Lion's Den, some Christians believe that it is the fate of Christians to be persecuted, using this as an excuse to do nothing. She goes on. Many church leaders disagree with the premise that Christians should not seek to eliminate suffering and persecution simply because the Bible predicts that that, that, that will occur. But the Bible shows that there are different approaches at different times to Christian persecution. Paul sometimes fled. Sometimes he suffered and endured. But sometimes he resisted such as when he used Roman citizenship to appeal to the charges against him. He used every legal means that he had in order not to suffer. And naive Christians in the West think it is our duty to run toward the stake. Have you forgotten that your Lord was in Gethsemane? What? Groaning over the night, that night before he was to, to suffer. In a passionate plea, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Christian in the West, don't ever say it's okay for your brothers and sisters to suffer if you can prevent it. One of the most obnoxious conversations you'll hear in, one of, in, in some of our Christian Sunday schools will be the question, would you lie if the Gestapo came to your house and asked you if you had Jews? And there's always this, hmm, I don't know if I'd lie because the Bible says lying is a sin and I want to obey God. You lie! What are you talking about? Of course you lie! You say, not me. I have never sinned. And you, Pharisee, leave an ox to fall in a ditch and let it struggle because you would rather keep Sabbatarianism than to save the greater life. 
Remember what Rahab, that Rahab herself was in the, in the story in Hebrews 11. She is emphasized in the great hall of faith because of why she lied to protect the Hebrew spies. If it were not for the lies of the Hebrew midwives, Moses would have been dead. If it were not for lies this very moment, the gospel of Jesus Christ would not be spreading in places like Turkey where missionaries cannot go over. They can't walk up. Yeah, we're part of the International Mission Board and we're here to, we're here to serve and we're here to convert you Muslims to Christ. And the Muslims at the Turkish border say, come on in. Make sure you get a gift bag on the way. No! You have to say you're there for tourism or you're there to teach people how to do gardening. Because if they find you out, if they don't kick you out of the country, you're put in prison. Kristen, get your head out of the sand. While we're debating silly things like that, people are dying. You choose, unfortunately, Christian, you have to choose in this life between sometimes rocking a hard place. And life is precious. Life is precious. Stop spending the blood of your brothers and sisters by your inaction and by bad theology. Reinhold Niebuhr said this. This is a famous prayer. He said, oh God, give us the serenity to accept what cannot be changed. The courage to change what should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. You know, Christian, sometimes persecution is inescapable. It's inescapable. But Paul used his Roman citizenship to try and get out of the persecution. Read the history of Justin Martyr who wrote the Apology. Tertullian who wrote an Apology. And that wasn't a, I'm sorry for being a Christian. That seems to be the plight of Christians these days. They love to walk around with their Christian guilt. We're sorry for what we did. Get over it. Apology simply means to give a defense of why we have the right to exist on this planet. When's the last time you saw an atheist hospital set up? No, but you go down to Baptist Hospital. St. Joe's, St. Joseph's, St. Mark's. All over. Christians are a blessing to this world. Christians, stop attacking your own people. If we were to take away Christians out of this out of this earth today, it would be a black hole of gross, disgusting immorality. We are the, what did Jesus say about you? We are the light of the world. Care about it. Sometimes persecution is inescapable. When Martin Luther stood before the tribunal at the Diet of Worms, in 1521, 
They asked him if those were his books on that table. And I submit to you that the right thing to do was to say, they are. And that's what he did. I submit to you that when Festus asked, when, when, when they ask, the leaders ask the Lord Jesus Christ, are you the Messiah? Are you a king? And Jesus says, it is as you said. You said it is what he says. Sometimes persecution is inevitable. But this morning we are not talking about that. We are talking about our responsibility. What's the first thing we can do? Support and aid those who are persecuted. First, make a commitment to take up the cause to fight against Christian suffering. You say, really? Yeah. I don't have social media, but enough people in my life have social media, and they constantly tell me about the stupid things you're writing about. The stupid causes you take up. And here's a serious one. You'd rather write about gluten than you would about the killings of your brothers and sisters in Syria. You'd rather worry about the killing of apes in the Congo than you would about the beheadings by ISIS. You will take up a cause. The question is, is it a worthy cause? You know what happens to chimpanzees when they die? They die. You know what happens when human beings die? The image of God is defiled. It is why God declared, thou shall not murder. We are not a higher evolved primate. We bear the image of God. Defend the image of God. Have you noticed that I'm preaching a little bit more forcefully these days? God has given me the epiphany. He told me this was real. He told me, don't care anymore. You know what I'm learning? When I say it nicely, people still get offended. Better that I say it truthfully and with some excitement. Go out with a blaze of glory. That's my new philosophy. Nina Shea notes how the United States can begin their support for Christian living <laughs> under persecution. <coughs> she says, here are some ways we in the United States can begin to support Christian, Christians living under the persecution. Number one, publicly condemn Christian persecution and show greater concern for persecuted Christians by the president and all appropriate branches of his administration. You ought to be looking to see if your administrators and your government officials are talking about persecution against God's people. Religious liberty should be a major, major question on how you vote. Let me say that again, because I don't think you believe me. Religious liberty ought to be a major, major concern, not what you're going to get back from the government. That, that's, listen to me. Read Romans 13 today, and I'll be glad to have a debate with you. Read Romans 13. The job of the government is not to give entitlement programs. It is to uphold what is good, and it is to punish what is evil. That is the role of the government. Do you hear me? Religious persecution ought to be 
top priority on your voting list. Not who or what. Not R or D. Not color or sex. Not religion. I don't care if the guy is a Mormon or not. If he is going to protect our right to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, so be it. We are to improve. One of the other things we can do is improve reporting by the State Department on Human Rights Bureau to ensure that its annual reports and other publications accurately reflect the situation facing Christians, eliminating from the annual uh, report and any other option of silence, getting rid of that and regarding persecution. Essentially, Shea is arguing that we must make it a policy that our politicians report accurately what's going on and not worry about political correctness. She says, number three, appoint a special presidential advisor for religious liberty. We have head of health. Why not religious liberty? We have to reform. Number four, she says, reform the ways in which immigration and naturalization service treats the petitions of escapees from anti-Christian persecution. Christians, we need to care when our brothers and sisters are trying to get into this safe haven. I know our political point of view on refugees might vary, but we should all be in agreement. When our brothers and sisters are trying to get safe haven, the United States of America does not close the door to those people. And number five, we have to, as a nation, terminate non-humanitarian foreign assistance to governments of countries that fail to take vigorous action to end anti-Christian or other religious persecution. I agree with every point she made. Western involvement in this issue is essential. Why? Because we have godly people in this country. It has become become in vogue to hear Christians talk about, well, it's time the United States get their comeuppance. Look at all her sins. Listen to me. Every nation in the world was appropriated by conquest. Hello. Even the Jews got it by conquest. The Canaanites would have been protesting today. Every nation in the world appropriated by conquest. The reason why the United States should stand is because it is full of God's people. And if God's people would get active, we would see how beneficial it is to the world. Do not... Do not, Christian. I know the United States has done some awful things. But the United States is not good because of what it has done. It is good because it provides opportunity for the gospel to go into the world. That's why. But you know, Benjamin Franklin wasn't a Christian. Yes, I know. I also know that one of his best friends in the world was the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, Pastor George Whitfield, and that over half of the books that he published were of Whitfield or by Whitfield because he believed that if America was going to succeed, it had to have Christians involved. Christians, you ought to care that quickly, quickly in this country, that flag is less important to your people. You ought to care. Well, wait a minute, uh, but uh, I'm on this side of the issue. Fine. I am telling you, understand this. America is the last hope for this world 
to allow Christians to speak the gospel truly. You do with that what you want. We have a moral conscience. Yes, we have our sins, as do every one of you individuals. We have monetary wealth. We have military power. And we have geopolitical influence in this country. And it ought to be being used to fight for Christians who are being persecuted. If you think I'm saying something that's radical, I submit to you, read the story, read Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand, and hear how he spent the rest of his life in the West urging Christians to get involved in persecution in America because it was the great hope for the world. We have the power to do so. When America wants something overseas, it gets it. And yet we are not demanding for peace for God's people. So let me answer these. How can you help this morning? Number one, get educated. Get educated. It was estimated that in 2016 alone, 90,000 Christians lost their lives to persecution. And if that number reflected any other group in the world, especially those that the world deems important, we would be fighting World War III. If that were 90,000 transgender people being murdered, we'd be fighting World War III. You say, really? Huffington Post, one of the most left-leaning and supportive for Islamic states, one of the articles that I just read this past week said this. This is interesting said, world, we can no, this is the title, we can no longer ignore, no longer ignore the persecutions of Christians around the world. Here's what he wrote. Why has the tragedy of Christians in the Muslim world been ignored? Because of the media's fear that criticizing Muslims is tantamount to racism. By the way, Islam is not a race. Do not make that mistake. Muslims are not a race of people. It is a religion. I attribute it as well, he says, to the secular media's lack of interest in and sometimes even scorn for religious belief. This is not a believer. This is the president of an interfaith movement at, uh, at Glen, uh, Grand Valley State. Western media must overcome its fear of criticizing Muslims and its disinterest in religious belief. Religious liberties are the most fundamental human liberties. They are indicators of a country's political willingness to allow people to choose their own way of life. In countries where religious liberty is conspicuously absent, one is likely to find a host of other liberties threatened as well, says the author. This is Kelly Clark of the Institute of Interfaith at Grand Valley State University. I am personally concerned that too many Christians first identify by some other subcategory rather than by their Christian faith, i.e., we first identify ourselves by our culture or our race or our love for America or our sex or our career or our wealth. But Christians are to emphasize their identity in Christ above all things. 
Galatians 3.28 said this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Listen to what he's saying. There is neither Jew nor Greek. He is saying not that you have lost your heritage, but that your heritage comes second. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I would love to see the Christian church start their own movement in response to BLM. Maybe we could call it Love Thy Neighbor. That was a pretty good start for Jesus, wasn't it? Love thy neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Whoever bears the image of God. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Love thy neighbor, Christians of the world. That's a redo. Love thy neighbor would be a better movement. Why? Christian, you are in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. This means that Christians' attention is often diverted from fighting for the faith to fighting for causes that are secondary. This is not to say that Christians should not be fighting to eradicate hunger or to eradicate racism, but when those battles become preeminent in our lives to the point of neglecting our brothers and sisters in Christ and religious freedom for Christians around the world and in this country, we have a serious problem. You need to know that Christian persecution is a global epidemic. You tell me, is 90,000 a significant enough number to get us involved? 90,000 last year alone. You need to arm yourself with data and facts. You need to keep fresh on the happenings around the world, and there are tools you can use. Go to opendoorusa.org. It's an easy place for you to go, opendoorusa.org persecution.com or barnabasaid.org to find out what exactly is going on. This past week when I was on those sites, I was shocked by my ignorance about how Christians suffer around the world. You know what's going to be beautiful too? You're going to see that they don't look like what you think they look like. But they're still your brother and sister because in Christ, in Christ, color and sex and racial heritage are secondary. Christ is preeminent. Read books. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Tortured for Christ. In the Lion's Den. The Global War on Christians by John Allen. And Christian Phobia, A Faith Under Attack. Those are just several books that I would recommend. The second thing is to become a voice. So first off, educate yourself. Second of all, when you get educated, become a voice. Social media has become a social phenomenon for getting ourselves and publicizing about information and especially ourselves. How do I know? I see your pages from time to time. And it's full of self-promotion. We're either taking a picture of ourselves. Or on Twitter or Instagram, we've taken a picture of our tiramisu because God knows if our friends don't know that we had tiramisu for dinner, their worlds will crumble. But you could use that to be a voice for real persecution. 
One of the great strengths of the social movement right now is that they're using social media and YouTube to be a voice for a cause that they care about. Say what you will, but at the very least, it's good reasoning, it's smart use of the tools. Christian, use the tools at your disposal. Become a voice. We post our favorite political memes on social media. We blog about the horrors of people suffering the persecution of microaggressions. Or we post pics of our desserts on Instagram. But how often do we post or preach about Christian persecution? How often do we blog about the horrors that our brothers and sisters are suffering around the world? I know I'm guilty of this too. What can you do? Seek to inform and enlighten those in your group who are unaware of the severity of Christian persecution around the world. I guarantee you that most of your friends who are not in the church are not aware of how grotesque the violence is against Christians globally. They are the number one, number one most persecuted group in the world, Christians. You hear me? Number one. And I'm not pulling that statistic out of my that is a government-funded a government study. Number one most persecuted group of people around the world, Christians. Use social media. Bring it up in conversations. Write a blog. Hold a forum. But become a voice. Number three, inform the state and local government of your concern. You can write a letter. Call your local politician's office. If you do, make sure you include real facts from credible sources. Don't sound like a crazy on the phone. Don't sound like a crazy in your letter. Make sure you include credible sources and you have real facts. Make sure you have your letters proofread. Stay clear and calm and don't get involved in hostile language and finger pointing. And the last thing you can do is be persistent. Don't stop. Today they won't hear you. Tomorrow they won't hear you. Give it time. They'll hear you eventually. Finally, the final thing you can do is pray. It seems like the least powerful thing you can do. But it is the number one thing. The number one thing on everyone's if you go around the world, if you ask, the number one thing that the persecuted brothers and sisters are asking for is for you to just care enough to get down on your knees and pray for their safety. Tonight, we're going to pray. We're going to be here to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. The first 30 minutes, we're going to pray for those who are sick or hurting in our church. We're going to lay hands on those. And if you are sick or hurting, we invite you to come tonight. Be here for 6 o'clock. We'll lay hands. The elders are going to lay hands on you and pray for your healing. Whatever it is, you don't even have to share it with us if you don't want to. But come and let us pray over you. In the last 30 minutes, we are, as a brother, as, as a church, brothers and sisters, we are going to remember those who are being persecuted as part of our body. I know you have plans already. Cancel them. One day a year. One day. 
364 days, we can do whatever we want. One day, they've asked, one day they've asked us to pray for them. They've given their lives to go overseas and to bear the cross of Christ. And they ask us for one day to pray for them. And not even one day, we're going to give 30 minutes to them. Make it a point to be here tonight to pray for the persecuted church. That's what they're asking us to do. And that's what Scripture commands us to do. As Paul wrote in Hebrews, remember those, remember those in prison. As though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let's pray. Father, everything I said this morning are words that have fallen on deaf ears if you, if you, Lord, do not give us all ears to hear. Lord, I am the first one as the pastor of this church who has to make persecution a part of our church's concern. And so, Lord, I repent. Forgive me where I have failed to pray for my brothers and sisters around the world, where I failed to support them, where I failed to be a voice for them. Lord, I pray that our church would acknowledge their sin of not remembering the brothers and sisters, that we would repent of that sin, and we know you forgive, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would empower them this morning as we take the blood, if we take, as we take the, the example and the symbol of your sacrifice of the blood and the body of Christ, we understand, Lord, that our salvation begins with our brother Christ in suffering. Suffering is to be a concern of ours for our brothers and sisters. You are a high priest who is sympathetic because you, Jesus, are the first to have suffered on our behalf. And so, Lord, let us take up arms. Let us take up arms together. Let us be serious as we take up spiritual arms to fight against persecution. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.